0: Well, good morning, everyone. Do you want to come on in, take your seats? We can get started. I hate to be the timely taskmaster. My name is Micah, and uh, we're going to be talking this morning about St. Frides Wide. And uh, as Jennifer alluded, we're a lot of people really unsure to how to pronounce her name. We're actually going to talk a little bit more about that. But first, I thought we'd open um, with a psalm. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is there who desires life and loves many days that they may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers her out of them all. He keeps all her bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Word of the Lord. So thank you in advance for putting up with this uh, kind of constellation uh, that's very scattered, made up of a princess, a dragon, an evil king, and um, actually a whole lot of spoilers for your favorite movies and TV shows. Um, So if you're working your way through Marvel and Game of Thrones, I'm really sorry. I'm gonna ruin them all for you and um, I'm really not that sorry either, so um, you've been warned. And for those who come in late, that's their fault. So we're even gonna talk about Wagner again, um, even though that's not the subject. So if you really enjoyed our uh, two-part lesson on Wagner earlier this year, you get some more of that. Um, And it won't concern set design or anything so methodically researched as what Father Martin put together for us. Um, But Wagner does remind me of Samson in quite a lot of ways, Um, just because they're both so powerful and so arrogant and so blessed by God, honestly, in these magnificent and really violent works of their hands. Both of them keep making wrong and selfish choices over and over and over again, and still God continues to use them to do great things. So he's not really one of those who comes to mind when we think of Psalm 34. Those aren't figures that we think of who really took refuge in the Lord. They took refuge in themselves. But the main focus this morning is um, St. Frideswide, also known as Fritha also known as Fritha. She even has a French name, which I won't bother to try to pronounce. Um, Her name comes from Anglo-Saxon words that mean peace and strength. Uh, She was an Anglo-Saxon royal nun saint who was born around 680, uh, we think, and she died on October 19th, uh, 727. So we're right around the 1300 year anniversary of her death almost. And if royal nun saint sounds like an impossibly specific categorization to you, um, there's actually a lot of those um, in no particular order. There's Bega and Bathild, Agnes, Adelaide, Cunegund, Clotilde, And if you go into the Russian Orthodox side, they weren't nuns, but you have Alexandra and Anastasia who are sainted as well. So if you came to church this morning looking for some baby name ideas, you've really hit the jackpot today. (laughs) So Frytswide is the patron of Oxford, and she's um, fairly obscure, but not quite as obscure. If if you're just to go to, to England and wander around, you'll find random chapels in the middle of the woods named after people who we really don't know anything about. Um, She's a little bit more common than that. She's um, the patron of Oxford, both the university and the city. Um, Since October 19th is her feast day, uh, we're going to use this catechesis um, to look at her legend as an invitation for reflection. And what do we mean when we say feast? What is this designation in our church calendar, and why does it matter? It's not a meal, which is what I thought it was. Um, but rather a uh, a religious commemoration and celebration. I was really glad I looked this up because I thought it was a meal. Um, In my family, life really revolves around food and I have a tremendous appetite for finer things, Uh, so my heart broke a little bit over this fact. But going back to our psalm, the real feast is Christ. Taste and see that the Lord is good. What true meal we have among us is communion, the table for all. And we can remember the words of the composer Olivier Messiaen, who our own Dr. Dan Horn taught us about last year. Messiaen writes, it is here to be found the unsullied table, the source of charitability, the feast of the poor, the well of holy sympathy, which to us is the very bread of life and love. We have forgotten, sweet Jesus, how you love us. Taste and see that the Lord is good indeed. So to start, some historical context. It's 7th and 8th century England, uh, not long after Pope Gregory I sent Augustine to the British Isles as a missionary. Remember last week, uh, it was Pope Gregory who was saying, they're not Anglos, they're angels. And so Augustine ended up sort of negotiating on his mission with uh, Germanic and Celtic paganism. And when he asked the Pope what to do about these pagan practices that they found among the Anglo-Saxons, the Pope had a very diplomatic response. He writes, The temples of the idols among the people should on no count be destroyed. The idols are to be destroyed, but the temples themselves are to be aspersed with holy water, altars set up in them, and relics deposited there. How would you feel if we were allowed to keep worshiping in this church so long as we were just worshiping a different god. It doesn't quite sound so satisfactory to me. Um, but here we are. We still celebrate Christmas when we do because of the Celtic Druid emphasis on um, the winter solstice. And our celebration of the resurrection is called Easter after a Celtic uh, spring cultus. So, as you can imagine, despite their best efforts, pagan practices persisted in Britain, and Anglo Saxon Christians didn't fully integrate with Rome so much that they actually had their own church hierarchy. Augustine admirably tried to bring that hierarchy into the Roman one, meeting with Anglo Saxon priests in a sacred oak grove, a pagan place of worship. He goes right in and he meets them where they are, in a nice bit of symbolism. Uh, But sadly, he lacked Gregory's knack for diplomacy, and his efforts to get them aligned failed. And Perhaps the funniest incident of having these two hierarchies is that there were actually two church calendars that weren't quite in sync with each other. Uh, So at one point, the Northumbrian king was celebrating Easter while his queen, uh, following the Roman calendar, was still laboring under Lent, which was really unfortunate for her. She was fasting. So I say all this to emphasize Frideswide's really bold choice to become a nun. She's born less than 100 years after Augustine is the first Archbishop of Canterbury. She was a princess who chose a life of piety instead of royal comfort. She was pursued by a wicked king who wanted to marry her. She took a ship to Benzie where she hid from him for three years. And finally, he threatened to storm the city of Oxford to take her by force. And will we get a happy ending? The odds aren't good because we typically don't treat women very well in our myths. We treat them as bastions of life and love and fertility and beauty, symbols, bearers of redemption, but that redemption only comes through their death. It probably goes back farther than this, but it's easy to point the finger starting with the Greeks with such notable sacrifices as Antigone and Ephigenia, From there, trace the thread up to Northern Europe, where women are treated about the same in Norse mythology. Their myths become the basis for Wagner's ring cycle, with Brunhilde sacrificed, immolated in the ultimate climax. Wagner does the same thing in Tristan and Isolde, with Isolde dying, transfigured by love at the end, singing the Liebestod. And then again, he does it in one of his operas of Christian Germany, Tannhäuser, When Tannhäuser's love, the righteous Princess Elizabeth sacrifices herself at the end of the opera, the Poprian states our hero and Tannhäuser is redeemed. Getting back to other works inspired by Norse mythology, while we may have waited 25 years or so to see what would happen at the end of Game of Thrones, anyone paying close attention really shouldn't have been surprised by who got the axe, or knife, as it were. And she may not have gone willingly, but it was certainly a sacrifice made by her lover for the greater good. And that infamous throne room scene, the final episode, actually visually echoed the final scene from uh, Lyric Opera's staging of Strauss's Electra last year with the stark stone castle literally dripping blood, the depiction of the fallout from uh, the sacrifice of Ephigenia. The trope even extends into our most recent and sort of our silliest myths that we harbor, In Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino toys with us, showing us happy scenes of actress Sharon Tate enjoying her life as a budding film star before finally creating an alternate historical timeline where she doesn't get murdered, but she lives on in timeless 1960s California glory. And tellingly, we get to see the actress playing Sharon Tate, but she barely says anything at all. And of course, her salvation only comes through the sacrifice of a different woman who is also burned alive just like Brunhilde. So meanwhile, over in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, not once but twice a woman is sacrificed in order to obtain the mystical soul stone. And I really don't understand what the soul stone is, it was just more important that a woman was sacrificed to get it. That seemed to be the very important point that we walked away with. So how will dear Freid's fare? She was born a princess, daughter of King Deiden, Queen Safrida. Despite being highborn, she was rather pious and a bit of an ascetic from a young age, probably from the influence of her caretaker, a holy woman named Elfrith. What a faithful and unsung legacy that woman would have through this young woman's life. Many of us probably have an Elfrith in our own lives. Frideswide learned the entire Psalter in six months, and the version of her life given to us in verse has this wonderful line about her, Of a rough hair shirt was her inmost clothing made an allusion to John the Baptist. It's a really, really great line. The rest of the poem is sort of rubbish, but I love that line. After her mother died, she was returned to her father's care, and she asks him to make her a nun. He gladly acquiesces, and so pleased is he to have a child who wants a pure life. He doesn't just make her a nun, he builds her a church. He summons the bishop. Her hair is ceremonially cut short in the very church that would one day bear her name. He goes on to build a few convent buildings around the establishment, And there she lives with twelve young other women, bound together by holy charity and love of seclusion." And it really says something that she looked at her own royal life and she chose the church instead. Listen to these words of Caesareus of Arles, written not long before Frideswide was born, from his sermon, The Transience of Earthly Delights. Beloved people, I ask that as often as you go by the sepulchres of rich people, you look at them and consider where their wealth has ended up, together with their goods and their worldly pride and their vanity. Why do you need all this that passes and slips away like the moon's shadow, with its worldly glory once so rich and now faded and dwindled and useless and defiled? And it's true all this wonderful stuff that I love and I hold dear, in a hundred years when I am gone, all of this will belong to someone else. What is the point? Why did I spend $30 on cheese at the farmer's market yesterday? (laughs) It's the wrong type of feast to be fixated on at the weekend. Of course, the young maiden's holy choice didn't come without some scrutiny from some wicked and interested parties. Here's a bit from the poem. Then one night when this maid was by herself alone in her bed beside her sisters sleeping every one the devil took to hating her for her holy life and planned he would deceive her by some trick he would devise he then appeared to tempt her in likeness of a man in precious clothes of beaten gold and to speak he then began my dearest girl he said to her don't worry here too long it's time you were rewarded for the labor you have done I am the one you worship. Pay heed to me now. Honor me, and for your service, your reward will be a crown. The fiend had there upon his head a crown of red gold. Another he held out to that maid, if she him honor would. Away from me, you wicked fiend, with your promises. She signed the cross, and away he flew, with noise and much distress. The devil himself pursued her. It's very dramatic. She must have been doing something right, I guess, because like most legends, there's this dragon that has to be defeated, just like the dragon of Revelation. and You have to take refuge from it in God, where you hide and, be and take protection from him like he hideth our souls in the cleft of the rock. And what an exemplary response Frideswide gives. It's reminiscent of Christ vanquishing the devil in the desert, This is from a sermon by Pope Gregory. Now in this last time, the Savior once again humbled himself to fast this same fast for 40 days and nights together. Why did the devil not wish to tempt Moses and Elijah as he tempted our Savior, except that he perceived that they were men in the flesh and bound by Adam's sin, and also that they had sinned in some things? For there never was a person in this Middle Earth so holy that he did not sin in something except Christ alone, who is true God and true man, never did sin attach to him. But when the devil came to him, he saw that he had a true body and that he was unlike all other people he had ever encountered in Middle Earth and that in him there was never a blemish of sin. The devil feared that this one was, just as he was, the son of the living God and thought then that he might find out through this tempting how this might be. He brought to him that same temptation with which he tempted and deceived the first people, Adam and Eve, and worked his will upon them. This was through gluttony, greed, and idle speech. Thus Christ wanted to overcome the accursed devil in these same three temptations with which earlier the devil had deceived the first people. And The devil must have been so confused by Frideswide because of her utter disinterest in a shiny crown and the trappings of worldly greed. And it really isn't as easy to say no as the poem makes it out to be. I know I choose the short-term worldly desires all the time. Christ promises us a feast at his table, but I want a worldly feast to make myself happy. Sometimes the things of this world, this country are my heart's desire. And that's why the dragon is such a powerful symbol in our myths. He collects treasure. He stores it up, he has his worldly wealth, and then he just sits on it. He stores up rich, he doesn't let it circulate, and by that he oppresses the poor. Perhaps it's appropriate that we get some really great examples of the temptation of the flesh from one of our favorite medieval scholars, C.S. Lewis, who was absolutely fixated on these choices, these beautiful either-ors in some of his books. In Perelandra, agents from planet Earth visit Venus to try and argue the new Adam and Eve figures onto one side or the other of their fresh creation to obey or to disobey. In The Magician's Nephew, and this is the one I want to spend some time talking about, a terrible and beautiful queen from an ancient world offers a forbidden apple of life-giving vitality to a young boy whose mother is on the verge of death. Diggory Kirk is the central figure in this story, in this prelude to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's probably my favorite of the seven books, just because it's such an incredible text, all about renunciation, just like Lord of the Rings. What I really like about this one is that C.S. Lewis shows us we're not just fleeing temptation. Fry's is not just resisting the devil, but there is something to run toward. There's refuge for us. The apple is good. It will give you life, but you have to be patient. So Diggory is living in London while his father is in India, and his mother is bedridden and sick, on the verge of death. He befriends the good and sensible neighbor, Polly, with whom he must contend with the poor, pathetic figure of his Uncle Andrew, loser amateur magician in a row house in London, who, quite by accident, forges magic rings that can take you to the wood between the worlds, an in-between land filled with portals to completely other universes. And too scared to go himself, he makes the children do his work, and they end up in the dead city of Charn. Not a soul is there. The sun is ancient, almost burned out. The children wander through an empty and silent city. The very name of the city is reminiscent of Charnel House, a place of death where skeletons are stored. This is where, in a great, rich hall, they find a sort of creepy collection of royal lords and ladies, all in a slumbering stasis. Remember Caesareus' words, the sepulchres of rich people, where did all that wealth and power even get them? Diggory and Polly discover in this hall an altar on which sits a golden bell and hammer. The inscription underneath it reads, Make your choice, adventurous stranger. Strike the bell and bide the danger. Or wonder, till it drives you mad, what would have happened if you had? Diggory gets into a fight with Polly, first verbally, and then he physically hurts her so that he can get a hold of the hammer. He's so manic to discover what's going to happen. He rings the bell. The queen awakes. And just as any time when you disobey God, the children get a lot more than they bargained for. Later in the story, Diggory meets the lion Aslan in the new world of Narnia. No sooner is it created... Then evil enters in in the form of the wicked Queen Jadis, the queen that Diggory woke up. The consequences of his sin are far-reaching. And how wicked she is. Before her enchanted sleep, she had brought a resounding end to a war in Charn by speaking the deplorable word and destroying all life. Someone who would rather end all life than lose a war to her own sister. Lewis was likely alluding to our own world's then-recent development, the atomic bomb. And little did Fridesweid know, just a few decades after her death, England would get its own nuclear war in the form of the Vikings that would come and ravage the country. So here in Narnia, Diggory is given the chance to redeem himself when Aslan gives him a quest. It's not an easy quest, and to his credit, the reason he undertakes it is because his mother's health is at the top of his mind. With his companions, he journeys to a magic garden deep within Narnia, a neat little compliment to his journey through the dead world of Charn, But now he explores the vibrant, living new world. He finds a garden, and he finds yet another poem. Come in by the gold gates, or not at all. Take of my fruit for others, or forbear. For those who steal, or those who climb my wall, shall find their heart's desire and despair. You can be sure he's going to be careful to obey now, but it's not easy. He takes the apple that he's to bring back to Aslan, and there's an unexpected meeting. The queen has already climbed over the wall and eaten her fill. And now the leering smile of this queen, already more powerful than he could imagine, beckons to him, offers him that same power. Become like me. Save yourself in this tale. Reign as my king in this new land. As the devil beckons to Frideswide with a silver tongue, The soft skin of the silver apple glimmers under the young sun, but Diggory sees through the wicked lies of the evil queen, remembering his own wicked selfishness ringing the bell in the lost halls of Charn, and he flees evil. So Lewis is showing us the importance of renunciation. Aslan teaches me, I can get my heart's desire, but it won't make me happy. I can indulge, I can give myself the greatest feast of the flesh, but it won't bring joy. Diggory finds joy through obedience, he is patient, and his mother is healed by eating the fruit. You have to be patient, you have to enter through the gate. Returning to Frideswide, her father dies, her parents are both now gone. She's left alone with her vows, but is still a claimant to wealth, property, and title. And she possesses great beauty, It's not long before the new king, King Algar, cruel and wicked, says our poem, takes notice of dear Frideswide. He proposes marriage, but she refuses, saying she was betrothed to God and would be all her life. The messengers sent by the king try in vain to persuade her, but she says, I would be a fool to forsake the king of heaven. They try to take her by force, yet still she resists. When they report back to King Algar, he's furious and he swears that he will make Frideswide his. Your witchcraft will no longer be able to save you, he says. No refuge could be secret from the lover. No coldness of heart could deter him. That night, an angel appears to Frideswide and urges her to flee to escape the king's wrath. Under cover of darkness, she leaves her beloved convent with two of her maidens. The angel guides them to a boat on the Thames and leads them on the water. She's too afraid to go to any city or town, lest the king find her, so she and her maidens hide in the woods of the town Binzi, in a pigsty. There she would stay for three winters, stuck in the humiliating mud and filth of the animals. Like the prodigal son, except her only crime was staying faithful to the king of heaven. Where do you hide when evil pursues you? Where do you take refuge and what do you do? Think about that. Think of an example from your life. It might not be the devil incarnate, it might be something simpler, something a bit sneakier, less brazen, but think about that. Think about what you did and hold on to that for a second. I spent several summers uh, when I was younger hiking in the Adirondack Mountains of New York in the High Peaks region. One of my favorite places to hike there is called the Great Range, a collection of eight mountains in a row. And depending on how you structure the trip, it can be just a really long and exhausting day. Uh, You have to climb up the first and make the initial ascent and then kind of hop from peak to peak. Lower Wolfjaw, Upper Wolfjaw, Armstrong, Gothic's Mountain, and then you come down and then I have to go all the way back up to Basin Mountain where you get a nice view of uh, some of the biggest mountains in the region. And if the weather's nice and if you're in good shape it's a really great hike but what do you do when you run out of water? You're up high there's no river, there's no lake, when you run out you are really out. But once you get down Gothic's Mountain before you climb up to Basin just off to the side of the trail in the scrubby brush where you can hardly see it there's just a little modest puddle. It's actually a spring and imagine the feeling after miles and miles how that fresh water from the well of the earth must taste on a dry hiker's lips. Taste and see. Hidden away in the woods, fried's wide praise to God, and a well springs up, a treacle well, meaning healing liquid, medicinal salve, and it's still there today. How impatient she must have been. How upset or did she treasure the peace of the Lord within her? While she was hidden there, she was actually blessed to be able to continue her ministry. A maiden who had been blind for seven years came to visit and Fridesweide healed her that she could see again. There are actually a lot of accounts of her performing healing miracles like this. But the safety of the exile was not to last. The king came to Binzi, furious. He turned the forest inside out with his army, and his hawks and his hunting hounds determined to find her. She fled again, this time to the city of Oxford. The king and his men surrounded the city. She was trapped and in need of another miracle. There was nowhere to go with this enemy at the gates, misogyny itself pounding on the walls. Marriage was no longer on his mind. This time, he was going to rape her. And then he would turn her over to his men so they could rape her too. 1,300 years later, we elected a man to the office of the presidency who has been accused of sexual assault by 60 women. He's an unrepentant sexual assailant. In an essay, Gia Tolentino writes the following, in the Trump era, the president attaches his dominance politics to a repulsive projection of sexual ownership over passive models, over random women, even over his own daughter. It's also no coincidence that white nationalism resurged through picking up online misogynists who lent the retrograde, violent, supremacist ideology an equally retrograde, violent, sexual edge. We can decode social priorities through looking at what's most commonly eroticized, male power and female submission, male violence and female pain. The most generically sexual images of women involve silence, performance, and artificiality, traits that leave male power intact or strengthened by draining women's energy. And there she is, Frideswide, trapped within the city. She prays one more time, and the words of Psalm 34 ring true again. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. God answers, striking King Algar with blindness. His men flee in terror. Frideswite is safe and untouched. Finally, a woman in one of our stories is granted salvation, but not through her own power, through the power of humble submission to God, the ultimate lesson that we learn from the example of her life. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers her out of them all. And what I can't stop thinking about when I think about her story is the example of the virgin. God elevated the girl Mary from one of the lowest rungs of society to be the mother of Jesus, and she answered with faithful obedience. Like Frideswine, we don't talk about her enough. She shows us not what we are capable of and not just what God is capable of, but who God is because of what he's able to do in us. He's a transformer, a protector, a guide to the humble, and a friend of the meek, great deliverer. Now here's where versions of the story start to differ. In one ending, King Algar goes blind and falls from his horse, (coughs) breaking his neck, and he dies. In another version, he doesn't go blind, he just falls from his horse and breaks his neck. In still another, he's warded off and told, if he enters the city of Oxford... Frideswides' safe haven, he will instantly die. And that's why no other king ever dared to enter the town at all, all the way until King Henry III. But another version extends a bit of grace to the king himself. He's blind and he seeks help. The Lord comes to him and tells him he must enter the city. He can be healed, just like Digory and the magician's nephew, by entering through the gate. I'm comforted by this final word that salvation only comes through drawing near to God in humble obedience. At the beginning of this talk I I listed a bunch of women who were sacrificed in myth and about a year ago someone gave me a book of poetry called The Princess Saves Herself in this one and in it uh, Amanda Lovelace describes the oppression she suffered usually at the hands of a man interchangeable in her poetry with the idea of the dragon. And it's an effort for a woman to reclaim her story and to discover herself. Here's what she writes. His talent. He never once had to use his hands to touch each and every part of me. And while Lovelace is right, there is salvation for the princess. The princess can be saved. Her antidote to danger and oppression is the self. And it's never really clear if she understands exactly what that is. And the dragon came flying back to the girl, as dragons often do, expecting to find the damaged damsel he left behind so long ago. He was horrified to find the mighty queen standing before him. After all, only queens have the power to vanquish dragons like him. He dared to seat himself upon the throne she built with her own two hands, and tell her she would never be strong enough to rule on her own. The queen looked right into the dragon's face as she laughed at his silly words, then unleashed upon him the fire dancing in her palms. Sugar, spice, and fire. I've really subjected you all to a lot of bad poetry this morning. (laughs) Even C.S. Lewis's attempts fell a little bit uh, short of the mark. But honestly, this is what I want to do, to my pursuer, I want to be like Samson. I want to fight my own flesh with my flesh. And really, it's, it, it's stupid. It doesn't make any sense when you think about it. Each of us is not strong enough to rule on our own. The strong will wander away sad, for they have great resources. The rich put their tails between their legs and never enter the kingdom of heaven. Why would they? They already have their own castles. They, do, they don't need the life of the treacle well. We should not take refuge inside ourselves for salvation, but in God. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Maybe the most hope that Lovelace feels is in her new partner, her only hope in the evil that pursued her. She writes, You deserve someone who makes you feel like the otherworldly creature you are, yourself. And again, she's half right. We are otherworldly creatures, made for heaven, but the self is not the solution, neither is the person you fall in love with. Fixate on Christ. Taste and see that the Lord is good, and then die in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that you are a stranger and an exile on this earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, They desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one, not a mountaintop, not Oxford, not the safety and security of a castle, but a ship in which an angel bears you to a new land you've never seen before. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And there's a sort of curious epilogue to the life of uh, dear Frideswide. 400 years after she died, we get the first written account of her life. Her fame spreads through the land. Students come to the university from all over and they pay respects to her shrine inside the church and they're very serious about keeping her feast. But then Cardinal Thomas Wolsey starts dissolving lots of monasteries around England, including Oxford. Her shrine was dismantled and her relics were hidden away in a corner of the church. Glory faded and persecuted even in death, it seems. Even the well that she prayed for is named after Margaret of Antioch. It's not named after her, but it fits Frideswide's humble obscurity. During the reign of Edward VI, a runaway nun named Catherine Cathy was buried there, and as you can imagine, the Catholics didn't quite like that, and her bones were ejected during the reign of Queen Mary. Then Queen Elizabeth comes to power, Protestantism is reinstated, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. There's really no rest, not even for her poor bones. James Caffel, the Canon of Christ Church, in an act of derision toward Catholics, mixes Catherine's bones with the bones of Friedswide and says, here lies religion with superstition. And According to one entry I read on the subject, the episode strikingly illustrates the character of the continuity between the ancient faith and the reformed religion of England, or lack thereof. But we don't have to divide it up in our hearts. We can look at it and celebrate being both high church and evangelical, as Matt has told us using this illustration before. Hearing again Caesarius of Arles, his words from the transience of earthly delights, Then, beloved people, though dead bones cannot speak from a sepulchre, Nevertheless, may, we may teach ourselves something through them, because we should always remember our passing away, and that we will never again go about here in the world. So maybe we can take some, a few minutes and discuss, what do you do when evil pursues you? It's a, I know it's a, it's a personal question, but if anyone feels comfortable sharing or wants to talk about an experience in their life, where do they take refuge? What do you take refuge from? Isolationism, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, she, she flees because she has to. It's like, you get out, or, or it's coming for you. But she obeys the angel. She obeys. Almost like we feel like we have things we don't need to flee. We're very comfortable with what we have close by. I was going to say, we associate,
1: I think, a lot of times, especially in this country where we are generally well, generally comfortable, um, discomfort with being outside of God's will. And she's looking at pigsty. Mm-hmm. And, and
0: <laughs> right yeah it's it's miraculous really is what it is and our own idols are what we have to flee is safety and security that's what we have we have to flee our own comfort but it's right there it's a constant companion it's a friend It's. it would be irresponsible to let it go right oh, that wouldn't make any sense I think that's one of the chief struggles that we that we have is that our 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 idols and the things that we should be fleeing are just such close and reliable friends, and they've always been that way for us. Yes?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's easy, I I feel like, sort of like what Joy said, a lot of times escaping is just doing, doing what you always do.
0: No, it ties in perfectly it's uh you know, you get you get your heart's desire right. and it doesn't make you happy it's like the the twilight zone episode where the gambler dies right. and wakes up in the afterlife and goes to the casino and just keeps winning and winning and winning he's like what this oh there's this this is like heaven right It's like no this isn't heaven and it turns out he's in hell cause, which is where you get everything that you want yeah before we close mark oh no I was just thinking, uh about <clears throat>
1: Mm-hmm. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Again and again, the devil, the nunnery, you in the city. She has to keep, uh, keep shedding. All right. Now I'm getting the signal that we're really done. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs>